1: Hey, happy Monday, friends. Happy Halloween. Rob Breckenridge with you here. Afternoons on 770 CHQR on this, the final day of October. A lot to get to this afternoon. Your phone calls included 403-974-8255. I want to focus on an issue that uh, is certainly a, a big issue in Alberta and one we've been hearing a lot about recently uh, and an issue that's not going away anytime soon, the issue of orphaned and abandoned wells. Uh, you know, the massive task that lies ahead in cleaning up these wells and the cost that goes with that. Now, what's the most effective way of addressing that? Let's also not overlook the fact that there are some legal obligations and legal issues that come into play here when it comes to cleaning up old wells. It appears as though the Alberta government is looking at a different approach, and it's something called the R Star proposal, something that now Premier Daniel Smith had spoken favorably about prior to re-entering politics. But more recently, something that her selection for energy minister, Peter Guthrie, after being sworn in, spoke favorably of. And in fact, it sounds as though the province is looking at a pilot project here. Uh, Peter Guthrie, the new energy minister, was quoted as saying, Our star is a pilot project that incentivizes the cleanup and reclamation of wells, and in doing so, it creates a royalty credit for future drilling, which on the surface sounds encouraging. We're incentivizing the cleanup and reclamation of wells that needs to happen. And then perhaps there's some future economic activity associated with that. When you take a step back, though, there is a big problem here. The idea of incentivizing companies to do what they're already legally obligated to do. Is that the right way to go about this? Well, someone who's been uh, following this uh, wrote a fascinating piece this week uh, for CBC on some of the issues Around the R Star proposal he is energy economist Andrew Leach. is at the University of Alberta, the Department of Economics, and the Faculty of Law. Professor Leach, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me back. Like I said, I mean, this is obviously a challenge that the government needs to address. I mean, what, what is the scope of the challenge as we understand it when it comes to uh, abandoned and, and orphaned wells?
2: Well, I think the the first thing is to separate what the premier and Energy Minister and others have been talking about, which is the reclamation liabilities that exist across all oil wells, which right. the regulator estimates to be somewhere in the $30 billion range, versus the share of that, which is sort of an orphan well, has no legal, uh, nobody who's legally on call for that liability, and then another set where you have wells that are held by companies and they're still, as far as the regulator's concerned, still an active license, but in reality, they're essentially insolvent, just not yet bankrupt and not yet orphaned. And okay. so the R star doesn't differentiate between those. It says if you do reclamation work, we'll pay for 30-ish percent of it, depending on what the oil price is. And so that was the, for me, that's the key issue. is It's, it's being sold as let's solve the orphan well problem, but it's not actually really driven at that at all.
1: OK, because it sounds like we got two different issues here or, you know, issues where we could make a big distinction. A company being incentivized to clean up its own mess and a company mm-hmm. being willing to step in and clean up a mess that it's not necessarily legally obligated to do.
2: Absolutely. And that's where I think the the program is being sold as though that kind of transaction is going to happen. that yeah. a company that has some liabilities on its site, that somebody else is going to be willing to take those on, do that work in return for the royalty credits. But the royalty credits are worth, you know, at most 30 cents on the dollar, 35 cents on the dollar. So those insolvent companies uh, or Mm -hmm. near insolvent entities, they're not going to be able to close that gap for something. No one's going to do this as a charity. Mm -hmm. And so what's going to happen is the companies that have a lot of liabilities on the landscape but haven't have the money to do it but haven't done it yet they're going to basically get a large bonus. The companies that haven't maintained a high liability on the landscape, they don't get quite as much. So to me, that's backward.
1: Where did this idea come from? As people may have noticed by now, we've already assigned it a name. We're referring to it as R-Star. So it wasn't the premier or her energy minister that came up with this. This is an idea that's been around for a while.
2: It's been an idea that's been around. And and, and, as far as uh, I can tell, it's had two, if not three previous names, Royalty Incentive Program, R-Star. And essentially, it's come. I think the, the key proponent for it is is a person named Chris Kinnear, who worked on Premier Smith's campaign, but has uh, runs a, a group that he calls the Sustaining Alberta's Energy Network, and they've been pushing for this as sort of a position of at least some junior oil and gas companies uh, that would like to see this incentive created. I think I think it's important, though, that the industry as a whole has always. Uh, pushed and supported the idea of the Orphan Well Association, the Orphan Well Fund being in some in sense some industry's commitment that these, these reclamation liabilities will eventually be dealt with, uh, this isn't sort of a broad industry position as far as I can tell.
1: Okay. So the simple version is you do the work now and you get a credit uh, that you would pay lower royalties on, on drilling in the future, basically.
2: Exactly or you could sell that credit. So it wouldn't okay. necessarily be your um, your drilling. It could be drilling that was already planned and occurring. And then when that, you could sell that credit to whoever is doing that. So there's no requirement, at least as far as I've seen the proposal written out, there's no requirement that the company receiving the R-Star credit would be the one actually doing the drilling. I think it's, it's in, intended to be something that's tradable.
1: There is a weird quirk to this, and, and as you note in your piece, I mean, it almost seems backward that when oil prices are high, like they've been recently, you know, there's there's more flexibility that companies have to do this kind of work. When oil prices are low, you, you wouldn't expect that. Maybe that's the time you need to incentivize some of this work, but this program doesn't work that way, does it?
2: Yeah, because it gives a royalty credit, the royalty rates are higher when prices are higher, and uh, they're lower when prices are low or when the well when a company's wells are um low production volume, et cetera, they're paying lower royalties. So the value of the credit um against a new well anywhere is going to be lower when prices are lower. And so I think that was the second piece I, I took issue with was exactly as you said. This is almost a rescue policy for the time we least need it. You don't want something that says, hey, we're really going to make it possible now for you to re- do this reclamation work that you're legally obligated to do when you're earning really high cash flows, but we'll give you a little bit to incent you to do it when you're not earning as much in the future.
1: So what if the idea and, and support, supporters of this suggest that this would create jobs? This would actually generate. Uh, additional revenue in in the form of royalties. What what do you make of that?
2: Well, I think there's two claims they make which are important. One is they say, and and the Premier well, when she was in her role as a lobbyist said, you know, no direct government cash is, is involved and it would create jobs. And some of these jobs would be from the induced reclamation activity and some would be from responding to the incentive. But I think what's important is that this program is actually putting about $6 billion worth of government royalty credit into the system. So um, it may change the way some people spend money, but it's not found money. It's not money that would otherwise not be spent in the province. It's just going to be spent in a different way. So the impact is pretty small. Um, and then I would also say it's it's disappointing to see the assumption built into these numbers that these sites would not otherwise be reclaimed and that You know, as Premier Smith's letter to Minister Savage had said at one point, essentially the bargain, the good faith bargain that Alberta has had with its oil and gas industry has sort of broken down. And I think if that's true, then, you know, by all means, let's have some real solutions. But I think the real solution here is enforce the laws we have, not not create a new incentive program for doing things that companies are already required to do.
1: Right. So there's a redundancy then in that sense, um, that that we're paying for something that, that would happen or is supposed to happen anyway. Is there anything to suggest, though, that even if there is a cost to all of this, that we somehow come out further ahead when it comes to cleaning up these liabilities?
2: I guess it depends on the assumption you take. So if your assumption is these liabilities are not otherwise going to be cleaned up and they're going to end up somehow on the government's books anyway... You could perhaps make that argument, but that's not the way the laws work right now. When they, and, and you see when companies are attempting to unload their assets or to offload sorry, their liabilities onto the, onto the Orphan Well Association, the other oil companies, Canadian Natural in particular, push back really hard on this because all of that reclamation work ends up being funded not by the taxpayer, but by other oil, by producing active oil and gas companies through the Orphan Well Levy and so you know it's the industry itself that should be on the hook for this and so i don't think it's right to kind of say well it's going to end up on the taxpayer anyway so we might as well see if we can pay 30 cents on the dollar instead of paying the whole thing this is paying 30 cents on the dollar that we should not be paying as you know sort of the alberta government or the the average alberta taxpayer it's already built in to the agreement with these producers,
1: right? So there's there's a risk that this could end up being basically a, a giveaway, a royalty giveaway.
2: I think it, it's it's more than a risk; it's the reality of yeah. it. It's we're going to give you credits for a thing that you're already required to do, and so it would be you know the equivalent of the government saying, um, you know, I'm I'm going to pay 30 percent of your visa bill this month. Mm-hmm. If you pay your visa bill, we'll give you a 30% credit on your next visa bill. Well, I have to pay that. I'm going to have to pay it. The government, I'd be more than happy if they want to kick in that 30% credit for me. But it's not actually um, something that's changing what's going to happen later on today when I have to pay my visa bill.
1: So in terms of where this goes from here, so the new energy minister is talking about a pilot project. Uh, I guess that's as far as this has gone. What's your sense of where this is at?
2: I mean, that's my understanding of where it's at. The uh, new energy minister had, I think he's only said it in a um, piece to a a smaller newspaper in Airdrie uh, that I linked to in my CBC piece where Mm -hmm. he said it was his first priority. Premier Smith mentioned it in a couple of instances, I think once in Medicine Hat and once at the convention. So it seems like we're heading down the road of of trying it out. Uh, I hope that they'll have second thoughts here when... They really stop and look and say what is this actually doing it's you know these are re- obligations not only are they required they would have been priced into the sale of the leases right this isn't something that was surprising to industry this is something they would have accounted for in deciding whether or not to um, engage in and develop in that resource development plan and so we've we've sort of already discounted if we if you will the access to the resource by requiring that. And now we're going to turn around and and essentially do it again by saying, oh, yeah, well, we'll pay for some of it for you.
1: Very interesting. Well, we'll keep a close eye on this. Uh, Andrew Leach, appreciate the insight and analysis here. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thanks a lot. I
0: appreciate it.
1: All the best. Andrew Leach, energy economist, professor in the Department of Economics and the Faculty of Law at the University of Alberta. Uh, So an overview of this uh, R-Star proposal that at least the government seems to be looking at at the moment, something to keep an eye on. Look, obviously, well cleanup is a big issue that we're going to need to address. I don't know. Is this the best way to go about it? Listen, we got a lot to get to here this afternoon. You can reach us, 403-974-8255. My name is Rob Brickenridge. We are back with more right after this. Now, there's been a lot of talk about autonomy and nationhood. Uh, both Alberta's new premier and Saskatchewan's premier have talked about Uh, their respective provinces being essentially nations within a nation. Uh, That was in a a recently published white paper from the government of Saskatchewan. Now they're moving forward with something called the Saskatchewan First Act. And Alberta's premier has made it clear uh, that we will soon be getting some version of the Alberta Sovereignty Act. What do these terms mean? When we talk about provincial autonomy, what does that mean? I mean, Canada is a decentralized federation, to be sure. And there is a lot of important provincial responsibility and jurisdiction. It's reasonable for provinces to protect that turf uh, from federal intrusion. But these ideas of of, uh, nation status or nationality, nationhood, what does that mean in a a Canadian context? And so how do we view these, these conversations around autonomy and jurisdiction and the Constitution and autonomy and decentralization? It's been a charged debate, to be sure. This really fascinating uh, three-piece series, in fact, up at the Hub, thehub.ca, from our next guest, uh, exploring some of these these, uh, concepts and how it applies in these uh, debates around provincial autonomy and protecting provincial jurisdiction. Joining us on the line here this afternoon uh, is its author, uh, Howard Anglin, postgraduate researcher at Oxford University, previously Deputy Chief of Staff to Prime Minister Stephen Harper and Principal Secretary to Premier Jason Kenney. Howard, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
0: Oh, thank you for having me, Rob.
1: Uh, Look, as you know, certainly here in Alberta, I mean, you you wrote a piece um, a few months ago, I think it was, you know, criticizing some aspects of the Alberta Sovereignty Act that was cited at the time by then Premier Jason Kenney. And I mean, obviously, it's proved to be quite a a charged issue here in Alberta. But when we take a step back and look big picture at, at some of these important concepts, what do you think is being left out of these conversations? Well,
0: I'll just start by uh, you. You brought up that piece I wrote. I think it was in July, critical of the Sovereignty Act. And I will say that the the two things I was most critical about about that act, um, one was basically ignoring court decisions and trying to set up a parallel court system, and the other is sort of a, a general tax revolt backed by the ATP. Um, the government has completely backed off that, and uh, mm-hmm. they've. Uh, so I, I'm I'm much less critical of where I think. Alberta Sovereignty Act will land. I'm so critical on theoretical grounds, but practical grounds. Uh, yeah. If it's just about uh, government enforcement priorities, I think that's within the mainstream. So I just wanted to get that out of the way because I, I am often still cited as a, sure. a fierce critic of the uh, Alberta Sovereignty Act and the things I was critical of don't seem to be part of uh, the government's current thinking. Um, what is being missed though overall in this? Um, I'm not sure. I guess it depends on what perspective you're coming at it from. I think um, I think the federal government, uh, looking at the provinces, is missing a lot about how a confederation should work, um, and that that is that's behind a lot of the frustration that a lot of people in Alberta and Saskatchewan in particular feel, and um, to a lesser degree in other parts of the country, but particularly in Alberta and Saskatchewan. Um, and uh, looking the other direction, uh, the Saskatchewan white paper included that line which you quoted up front, uh, talking about how Saskatchewan should be a nation within a nation. And I, I think that's just a red herring. I, I think it's unnecessarily confusing the matter of, of, of provincial power and and the nature of a province within a confederation. I, I don't think Saskatchewan or Alberta has to claim nationhood status mm-hmm. in the same way, say, the Quebecois in Quebec have in order to their legitimate claims against the federal government that their provincial rights be respected I, I think it's enough that they are a province to be able to assert their provincial rights within confederation and going down this idea of whether you are ten nations or six nations if you do it regionally or more nations if you include the uh, several hundred first nations of canada I, I think that that gets into a very sticky place very quickly, so I did write in my piece that uh, I would encourage the no government to back off the nation talk and just focus on their legitimate claims as a province,
1: right? And I think what you're saying that it is, it's entirely legitimate for Alberta, Saskatchewan, and other province to defend their jurisdiction. But aspiring to more, either it be usurping federal jurisdiction or to try to be almost a federal jurisdiction in and of themselves, is is an overreach and, and problematic.
0: Yes, I would agree with that. Um, I think. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know how much you want me to get into sort of the distinctions between these things, but um, as, as you know, and probably most of your listeners know, Canada is a confederation set up uh, with two different levels of government. Um, but the fact that there are, that uh, oh, but the fact is that Ottawa, for for many decades, but particularly uh, in the last uh, seven or eight years, has has really come to see itself as the caretaker of the provinces. And that's just not how the Constitution was originally set up. So, for example, the current government um, recently set up a national child care plan. Right. And it did so by handing money to the provinces on the condition that the provinces set up their child care plans in a very, very specific way. Now, that's just something that's wholly inappropriate under our Constitution. Uh, the federal government is able to do it just because, as a factual matter, it collects the taxes on behalf of the provinces. So when it then hands that money back, it's able to do, do it by uh, attaching strings. Uh, and if a province doesn't want to get its share of the money, or it doesn't want uh, to accept those strings, then it won't get its share of the money. Uh, and that, that's just an inappropriate intrusion into an area of child care, which is a quintessentially provincial um, power. And the federal government couldn't legislate Childcare rules in Alberta or Saskatchewan. So the fact that they try and do it by attaching strings uh, to this funding, which should be the province's money, as a right, uh, that's the kind of intrusion uh, that uh, this sort of typifies the Ottawa attitude—the attitude that um, if provinces don't do it the way Ottawa thinks it should be done, whatever the policy is, whether it's uh, um, emissions reduction or. Uh, Environmental assessment through the Impact Assessment Act 269, or childcare policy, then somehow the provinces are are, are running amok or or going rogue or something. If if, if 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 Ottawa doesn't have have them attached to the end of strings, then there's the some fear the provinces will do will do crazy things. Well, uh, my response would be, like, Ottawa has a hard enough time doing what it should be doing within its jurisdiction. It can't do procurement. It's having trouble running a military right now. It can't up, can't distribute passports. Um, its foreign policy is largely inconsistent. I think Ottawa should really be focusing on the stuff that's within its jurisdiction and, um, and not just are messing around in, in provincial areas, which uh, particularly at a time where some provinces like Alberta and Saskatchewan are particularly sensitive to federal intrusion right. it just risks um provoking the sort of reaction that we've seen in quebec for the years and uh I, I, we have one quebec um it's Quebec's a valuable part of canada as a nation uh, but the problems of ottawa dealing with quebec are not something we need to replicate um in, in other parts of the country so i think ottawa should show Alberta and saskatchewan and the other provinces the same respect it does uh it does quebec
1: yeah well, and to that, I mean, you know, we, we've heard it said, uh, including by Alberta's new premier, that, you know, we should aspire to to that, that uh, if Quebec is treated a certain way, we should want to be treated a certain way. Now, you mentioned earlier that, that you know, the Quebecois could reasonably be seen as a nation, whereas maybe Alberta or Saskatchewan would, would not. What is the distinction, when, and, and is that something we should envy? Is is What does it mean in practice?
0: I don't think it should be envied or or disparaged. I think it's just a fact. So when Stephen Harper's government introduced a motion in the House to recognize the Quebecois as a nation within a united Canada, I think he was just recognizing reality. Uh, the Quebecois, for historical and cultural reasons, um, are distinct within Canada. I would also say that the First Nations are distinct in the same way that uh, Quebec is. and it's a, a whole other area of constitutional confusion. That, uh, that, uh, that's looming for us as a country. But to me, it's just undeniable that the Québécois are um, a people in the way that you wouldn't say that Albertans are a people or Saskatchewan are people. Um, and it has to do with the degree or, or, or the, sorry, the quality of, of the differences. There are obviously differences between the regions, between provinces, but there are also differences between culture of Calgary and the culture of Edmonton, but we wouldn't say that they're two distinct peoples. Um, so there's normal differences, um, which occur in any large population, but then there's distinct differences. And the ones that make Quebec distinct are very obvious. It's language, it used to be religion, and it's a distinct culture, which um, I get into where that distinct culture may come from historically in Quebec. Um, but there's a reason that something like Quebec um, can claim nation status in the same way to say the Basque people or the Catalan people in Spain trying, are trying to claim nation status um, and I would also add to that that being a nation doesn't mean you are, have a right to independence or, or full sovereignty um, but it does mean that you have a claim to a certain degree of respect and in Quebec's case that's mostly respect for language um, and mostly for language rights within Quebec um, and that's not without its own controversies uh, there are minorities within Quebec who have a lot of problems with that uh, but um, but this is something we're always going to have to deal with as a country. And denying the reality that Quebec is a nation, I think, created a whole bunch of problems. At the same time, trying to make claims that each individual province is a nation, the same way Quebec is, creates a whole sort of uh, a whole bunch of confusions of its own. And I think it's enough that each province actually just says, "Look, we're a province. We have rights as a province. We don't need to get into nationhood status as." Uh, The Saskatchewan government seems
1: to want to do. Well, we'll see soon enough the Saskatchewan First Act and uh, followed shortly thereafter by the Alberta Sovereignty Act. In the meantime, this three-part series, it's up at thehub.ca. Howard, really interesting conversation. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today.
0: Well, thank you very much,
1: Rob. Much appreciated. Cheers. Howard Anglin, a postgraduate researcher at Oxford University, of course, was previously principal secretary to Alberta Premier Jason Kenney, previously had been deputy chief of staff to Prime Minister Stephen Harper. So a really interesting uh, series of articles that kind of gets into these concepts, like what does this all mean? And what actually matters in all of this? Like, does it really matter if Alberta is seen as, treated as, referred to as a nation? Or is it simply about the importance of protecting the jurisdiction that exists, right? We have a very decentralized federation. There's a lot of responsibility that falls on the shoulders of of provinces, and therefore that's their jurisdiction. That's their turf, if you will. Uh, So as uh, Howard Anglin writes, Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe was quite right to push back against this model of asymmetrical federalism and insist on his province's constitutional rights, especially in the face of an unusually hostile federal government. But he doesn't need to pretend to be a... Uh, a nation in order to do so. So there's some concepts we could probably move away from that aren't helpful, but there's some important issues here. Uh, So the Saskatchewan First Act uh, will likely be tabled first. Obviously, it's still going to be almost a month until the Alberta legislature resumes. We'll see what the Alberta Sovereignty Act ends up looking like. And certainly, as we mentioned, Howard Anglin had wrote a pretty scathing article uh, some months ago about the Alberta Sovereignty Act, or at least the concept of trying to usurp federal jurisdiction or ignore the courts. But if what we end up with is closer to the Saskatchewan First Act, simply about reiterating and defending provincial jurisdiction, that's that's far less problematic. We'll see. We hear a lot these days about hydrogen, the potential of hydrogen. As a reliable alternative to fossil fuels, and hydrogen as a real boon to Alberta. Though, once again, we're in a situation where we've got a resource we're able to develop and a resource we're expecting there is going to be a lot of demand for. But there isn't yet. Alberta's goal is by 2030 to have established itself as a global supplier of choice and clean hydrogen exports. This is the hydrogen roadmap. Of the Alberta government, and it certainly seems to be one of these issues that is really going to be a continuation from the previous premier to this premier. Uh, premier Daniel Smith speaking recently at the Edmonton Chamber of Commerce. says, so there has been something quite dramatic that has happened in this province in probably the last five years. I've watched the innovation and the innovators and the new ideas coming up. I don't think I've ever seen our business community as aligned on this issue, that not only can we do this, we can do it better than anyone else, and that's a message the rest of the world needs to hear. And certainly I think from an Alberta perspective, as we look at the push toward net zero and some of the lofty emissions targets the federal government has, uh, this is something that could go a long way in getting us down that path while benefiting economically at the same time. So are these ambitions almost too lofty or what realistically can be done between now and 2030, between now and 2050? To make this a reality, it feels like we've got a long way to go. Uh, But joining us for some further thoughts on all of this, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Dr. David Lazell, an energy systems architect with the Transition Accelerator, also a uh, professor at the University of Calgary. More, by the way, at uh, uh, transitionaccelerator.ca. Professor Lazell, great to have you with us here. Welcome Mm -hmm. to the program.
3: Very good to be here. Thank you.
1: Okay, so like I I said, we're hearing a lot of this kind of rhetoric, a lot of excitement and optimism and hype around hydrogen, but... What's the reality of the situation as it stands right now?
3: Well, the province of Alberta already makes um, many thousands, of probably 5, 6, even 7,000 ton, tons of hydrogen every day. And um, and we use this uh, hydrogen uh, to crack bitumen. It's synthetic crude oil. Mm-hmm. We use it to make a lot of fertilizer, ammonia. Uh, we use it to upgrade uh, oil into transportation fuels. And we use it to make other chemicals and materials. Um, so in a, in a world where we're really looking for um, an energy carriers, I mean, we're, we're looking to make energy carriers that can be used to, uh, to support transportation, space heating, etc., that um, when you burn them and consume them, they don't produce greenhouse gas emissions. And that is an opportunity for hydrogen. What that means is we have to take care of our emissions uh, upfront when we're making the hydrogen in the first place, But that's a lot easier to do in large, centralized plants that make the hydrogen. You can capture the carbon dioxide and put it back underground. Uh, It's a lot easier to do that than on the tailpipe of your car as it drives down the street. Mm -hmm. it's, It's very difficult and impossible to capture that CO2. So what we are looking at is changing the structure of our energy systems, where hydrogen is the energy carrier we're using in the end, rather than diesel fuel or gasoline or natural gas in our houses,
1: but do we have to wait for the demand side to change? Are we kind of at the mercy of of those forces?
3: Well, there's I think there's three ways that hydrogen in Alberta makes uh, has pr- creates a huge opportunity, and the first one is to take the hydrogen that we're already making and using today and we're using it in the oil industry and in fertilizer production, and make that hydrogen without carbon emissions and sequester the carbon back into, uh, put the carbon back underground. And that will actually reduce the carbon footprint of oil sands production, for example. And, and so that's the low-hanging fruit. There are many companies out there with large planned investments in the next few years, and they're actually starting to invest right now to to make hydrogen. Uh, that will actually reduce the carbon footprint of of oil production uh, and um, you know, for, for export and for domestic use, the second one you've talked about is uh, is the is possibility of making hydrogen for export, and Japan and South Korea and Germany have all expressed a strong interest in importing uh, zero emission fuels, uh, hydrogen or another um, uh, alternative to hydrogen is ammonia. Uh, as a energy carrier that they can use to make electricity and use to, to fuel their economy, and so that's a second opportunity. And I think that's the one that uh, the premier was talking about in the in the discussion last uh, on on the weekend. And the third one is, of course, starting to um, make the hydrogen and use it ourselves. And for that, we do need to have hydrogen vehicles. We need hydrogen fuel cell buses and trucks. Uh, first two hydrogen fuel cell buses arrived in Alberta. These are the first two in Canada since the Olympics in, in Vancouver when they were in, in pilot stage. But uh, they've just arrived in the last uh, few weeks in Edmonton, and they'll be on the road taking passengers around in, mm-hmm. in the Edmonton area. Uh, CP Rail out of Calgary here has already built a hydrogen fuel cell train, a locomotive, a uh, very large uh, locomotive, that, um, and they're just taking it through its paces now, uh, trying to get it on the rails to, to start moving, moving freight around within this region. And, 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 you know and there are other initiatives going on in, in Alberta and across Canada to try to create uh, domestic demand for hydrogen as a fuel. And so that right. is going to take, um, that's going to take many years, but we're starting to see that happen
1: right now. Yeah, there's also the challenge of, of shipping hydrogen, and I know that the pipeline infrastructure when it comes to hydrogen poses, you know, there's there's some unique challenges there. What about that side of it?
3: Well, certainly um, there there's been a lot of discussion and interest about putting hydrogen into natural gas pipelines. Uh, it could be done. You can put hydrogen in, for example, into pipelines that come to each of our homes. And uh, Atco is uh, is trialing this process in in Fort Saskatchewan in Alberta, where they're putting it in at you know up to five percent uh, hydrogen by volume. And you don't need to make any changes in the pipelines with that or the valves. It just goes in smoothly. It's you know in, in some places of the world. Hydrogen naturally occurs in natural gas, at, you know, in, in that range. Um, so, so that that doesn't require any changes. But getting pure hydrogen into into natural gas pipelines essentially uh, stop putting natural gas through the pipelines, start put, start putting hydrogen through. Um, there is a um, challenges that have to change out some fittings. You have to change out the valves and uh, pressure sensors and things. But you also uh, need to look at the material of the pipeline because hydrogen can cause embrittlement and pipeline failure with some kinds of, of hydrogen pipelines, especially if they're made with high-carbon steel, for example. Mm-hmm. So there's, you can make a pipeline out of different materials. You can actually put a liner inside the pipeline to do that. Uh, there are companies working on that. And there's even some evidence that you could put an additive into the hydrogen that will prevent it from attacking the steel. And, uh, and lots of work's being done in this area right now, and I think, you know, the technology will figure a way of, of uh, how do we repurpose some of our existing infrastructure so they can be used with, uh, with hydrogen in the future and, and lower the cost of actually achieving this transition
1: yeah well and it, yeah and it's worth noting there's we have an alberta the edmonton region hydrogen hub the transition accelerators a partner in that multiple levels of government are, are partners in that does this seem from your perspective that it's one of those issues where there's a lot of overlap in terms of you know the federal agenda the provincial agenda what industry's looking for like seems like one of those rare examples where there's a lot of consensus
3: well i think yes it's actually quite exciting in that way i was, i mean the uh, The many decades that I've worked on uh, looking at uh, uh, trying to align federal and provincial uh, priorities to address uh, issues around climate change, this is one where there is really an excellent alignment. And I would say not only between Alberta and the federal government, but between other provinces like Quebec and the federal government and, and Ontario, et cetera, where a lot of these, a lot of the provinces see opportunities for. Um, hydrogen to help in their, you know, and, and be an opportunity, an economic development opportunity for individual provinces and regions within provinces, as well as address the climate change issue and help to create jobs. So, so I think this is an, an opportunity for Canada. Hydrogen could be actually a key uh, pillar, I would say, in a nation-building exercise, where uh, where we can actually have a shared goal for a transition to a a net zero future, but where it actually creates local opportunities as well as uh, national opportunities.
1: So are we on the right path policy-wise, or is is there more you think that that we should be doing?
3: Well, what I would like to see is, you know, the governments are all starting to do this. Uh, Industry is running very fast to catch up, but this is really pushing on I'm, I'm trying to create the demands for hydrogen, and that's really about introducing uh, hydrogen uh, fuel cell trucks, hydrogen diesel dual fuel, you know, uh, vehicles. Uh, especially on the heavy duty side, uh, the work that CP is doing, for example, on on creating, um, uh, basically taking a diesel electric train, ripping the diesel engine out of it, and replacing it with fuel cells and hydrogen tanks. This is we need to be encouraging this work. To be done, we need to make it more efficient. We need to get more trials going. And, uh, you know, and, and Canada could actually start to attract the manufacturing industries from around the world if we can be a leader in in not only the production of uh, of hydrogen, but its use and the sale of, um, of uh, technologies, uh, whether it's vehicles or, or heaters or power generation technologies that use hydrogen. Um, there's a strong indication that we should be able to attract the companies that want to make those uh, you know those technologies and build them to come to to Canada to come to Alberta and other provinces that are that are going to actually uh, be buying those technologies and deploying them and I think that there's a, there's an opportunity here as we move into a um, a new energy system that is is more climate friendly um, there's an opportunity to create jobs and, and uh, economic development uh, around those technologies. And I think, you know, I think there's a significant opportunity to do that. I'd like to see us move a lot faster in that, in that area, for sure.
1: Mm-hmm. We'll leave it there. Very interesting stuff. Much more is mentioned. TransitionAccelerator.ca. David, thanks again for joining us here today. Really appreciate it.
3: My pleasure. Thank you very much.
1: All the best. Take care. Uh, That's uh, Dr. David Lazell, Energy Systems Architect with the Transition Accelerator, also professor at the University of Calgary. Yeah, we're on the cusp of something big here, potentially. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, Rob, at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time.